This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Adam Babette, who serves as a lecturer in political geology at the University of Glasgow. After studying architecture and landscape at the University of Toronto, Adam earned his PhD in geography from Cambridge. His research examines the intersections between politics and environmental and earth sciences, with a special regional focus on Indonesia. His new book is The Pulse of the Earth, which was published by Duke University Press. As many listeners will already know, the next meeting of our flagship conference, the International Convention of Asia Scholars, or ICAS, will take place in Surabaya, Indonesia, from July 28, 2024. In the run-up to that conference, we are hoping to familiarize our network with the local Javanese context, to enrich the ICAS experience, and to deepen our engagement with the city. This episode is part of that project. As you'll hear, Adam's work offers a unique and transdisciplinary view onto questions of science, imperialism, Indonesian cosmologies, and contemporary politics, all while introducing listeners to geological features of the Javanese landscape. We hope you'll join us in Surabaya for ICAST 13 this summer. But until then, here's my conversation with Adam Babette. Adam Bobette, thank you for taking the time to join me on the channel to talk about your new book, The Pulse of the Earth. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for having me. You lecture and specialize in political geology, which is a somewhat uncommon field. So I actually want to start there. How do you define political geology and how did you come to it academically? Mm, yeah, well, political geology is a pretty new field. Um, you could call it a subfield of human geography, if you wanted to. And I came to it really through Anthropocene discourses, which are, of course, quite old at this stage. Um, yeah, so really it was Anthropocene discourses that got me interested and thinking more about the geological sciences and what the geological sciences do in society and in culture, because of course, with the emergence of Anthropocene discourses that was driven by geologists, geological scientists, and earth scientists who were making quite a profound claim about where society was in relationship to the history of the earth. And it was also then circulating in all sorts of other domains. It was appearing in the arts and suddenly 15 years ago, artists are making art about the Anthropocene and is appearing in film and popular culture, all this kind of stuff. So I began to think about 
the social and political role of the geological sciences and um, was doing so alongside, inspired by, unexpectedly intersecting with lots of other thinkers. And the term political geology began to kind of surface, it seemed to me, kind of simultaneously in a bunch of different places. I'm not exactly sure who used it first, but in 2015 or something like that, I collaborated with Amy Donovan at the University of Cambridge, and we held the first uh, conference on political geology to bring people together to talk about it and to think about it and to try to explore what it could mean. And that turned into uh, an edited volume called Political Geology, Active Stratigraphies and the Making of Life. And then subsequently, I just kind of continued working in that space and really came to see it as a, a fundamental space to be able to understand the contemporary world. And here we are now. <laughs> Yeah, that brings us to your new book, which is not maybe not the culmination, but certainly a culmination of this work that you just described. The book is The Pulse of the Earth, and it came out with Duke University Press in 2023. In the book, you're looking at the history of earth sciences and particularly the role that Java Indonesia played in that story. How did you first come to Java and why was it such an important place in the earth sciences and in geological thought more broadly? Well, I first came to Java not being interested in geology per se because I was interested in water and urban politics and was doing work around that in Jakarta, trying to understand what the political conditions were in a place that was inhabited by 20 million people, was sinking while sea levels were rising. And at the time when I started working there, I really had a, had a very um, dysfunctional um, system of urban governance. And then by accident, I ended up in central Java in a taxi, and I saw Mount Merapi where I learned that there were anywhere between one and two million people living on it and that it was an active volcano. And it had been inhabited for who knows how long, centuries, perhaps millennia. And it struck me as a kind of intensified version of what I was seeing in Jakarta. Uh, and it struck me as a place where we could learn about what it meant to live with volatile nature, unpredictable nature, which was also what I was seeing in Jakarta in relationship to sea level rise, and also what we are all seeing now. It's the condition that we all live with now. Um, so... This weekend, the Weather Bureau is forecasting that the temperature in the south of England will be the same as Ibiza. So we are witnessing the Mediterraneanization of, you know, northern Europe 
completely unexpected and the consequences of that are completely unknown and certainly volatile. So we live in a condition that, as I came to think of it when I was first encountering Merapi, that we live in a, con a condition that people on Merapi have lived with for a very, very long time. Ulrich Beck in the Risk Society, published in when that was in the 90s, I think, said that the Risk Society is living on the edge of a volcano. Um, but he never actually talks about volcanoes anywhere else in that in that text. But um, that was essentially what I came to learn through, or what I came to think about through my first encounter with Merapi. Um, and that is what set me on the path then of thinking about geology and the social life of geology. Because, of course, Merapi is, you know, something that's known by geologists, has been a subject of study by geologists for a very, very long time. And it's also a very special kind of geology because it's volcanic. So it's very active and it's a much different vision of geology than a lot of people have otherwise, because I think that conventionally we think of geology as something which is very stable, uh, something which is underfoot, something that is millions or billions of years old, um, or it is something which is extracted, um, which is again stable, which is underneath us that we can pull up and we can reshape and make into something else. A volcano is a very special kind of geology, though, because it's basically a liquid. So the kinds of conventional distinctions between solids and liquids really begin to become very ambiguous on volcanoes. So that was also really inspiring to me. One thing I want listeners to get a sense of is the, the way you write about these, these topics and these disciplines, because, you know, it might be tempting to think that geology or earth sciences, as you said, is a kind of static maybe formalistic thing, but you write about it in this way that really tries to bring it to life. And so I wonder, could you just read the first paragraph of the preface of your book to give listeners a sense of, of your writing style and how you're presenting this geological story? Yeah, sure. The modern earth was made in Java. We as in the we who believe that the earth is broken into tectonic plates that glide across the surface of the earth and grind into each other, and that the ocean floors are bisected with massive trenches that ooze the stuff that makes continents. We inherited these stories from Java. Our orthodoxy, the taken-for-granted scientific picture of the history and structure of the earth was forged on the slopes of Javanese volcanoes as scientists watched them shudder, explode, crumble, turn to dust and ash, and wash into the oceans. Scientists photographed the remains of houses cracked by earthquakes. Then they circled smoking calderas in airplanes, hidden bunkers, peered from prison lookout towers, trekked through forests of giant ferns and pine trees growing from volcanic soils. 
It was in these volatile, rambunctious landscapes that a new, modern story of the earth was forged. A story that stressed how the earth was formed under duress, a system of creative destruction, a surface remaking itself in deep time, buckling, crushing, and re-emerging from its own split seams. Thank you. You mentioned Mount Merapi earlier, and you talked a little bit about volcanoes as this key that kind of opened the door to you writing this book ultimately. And volcanoes are, of course, a notable feature of the Javanese landscape and one that your book is particularly focused on. What role does volcanology play in the story you're telling or in, say, the social life of geology as you described it earlier? Mm. Yeah, so... Um... This builds on what I was talking about earlier about how volcanoes are this very special kind of geology because they're so active and how that really opens up a different story about the history of the geological sciences than ones we are more familiar with, which is about how the geological sciences have been connected to histories of extraction. Uh, especially critical histories of the geological sciences, which really focused on how it is that, you know, the geological sciences furnished us with knowledge of where to get coal and other minerals and how to dig them out of the ground. Volcano science, though, and the geological knowledges associated with volcano sciences are a different story because you obviously are not like looking to extract stuff from volcanoes, you're looking to protect people from their explosions. You're looking to predict when eruptions are going to happen. So it's an anticipatory science and one which is fundamentally bound up with histories of divination and how it is that we know the future and tell stories about the future. And also in the uh, context of the Netherlands East Indies, volcanoes were principally of interest because they were destroying the plantations. So, you know, we all know that the Netherlands East Indies was a plantation economy, one built not on the extraction of ores so much as the extraction of botanical products. But the role of volcano science in that story is really not known generally, but it was profound because volcanoes would erupt and they would destroy the plantations and shut down the plantation economy, like the eruption of Krakatoa, for instance, where there was no trade suddenly between the Netherlands, East Indies and Europe. So all the products coming out of the plantations were just halted on barges, really, on ships. So the emergence of the modern volcano sciences in the world certainly was driven by this attempt to understand how volcanoes worked to be able to manage their eruptions in the Netherlands, East Indies. And then that knowledge spread around to other parts of the world. I'm interested if you could talk a little more about the relationship between empire and the earth sciences generally. That was actually going to be my next question. So 
I mean, I come from a background mm-hmm. in anthropology and geography, which are two disciplines, maybe more than most others that are well known to have supported the Imperial project and also emerged directly out of it. Geology, as you said, has this history of basically facilitating extractivism. Could you talk about that a little more generally, not only in the case of Dutch colonialism, but global colonialism more broadly? Hmm. Yeah, I can try. I'm not really an expert on the geological sciences globally because there are certainly regional differences that are very, very important to take account of in that story. But what I can say is that there is no doubt that the geological sciences, the European geological sciences, I I should be really specific about that, are completely wrapped up in the European colonial project and imperial projects for the things that we just talked about, right? So that's identifying ores and minerals in the ground to be able to exploit for mapping those ores and minerals in the ground or developing techniques to visualize them and discourses and ways of thinking and knowledges to describe them and to construct a story of landscapes that connect local phenomena in the landscape to regional phenomena to planetary phenomena. So the geological sciences really in this kind of period of high empire that I I think is what we're referring to here is working on these levels simultaneously where it's a kind of, it's it's very practical work about finding stuff in the ground, but it's also about telling big stories about the earth itself and its history and how it's taken the shape that it that it's taken. Yeah, I'm glad you bring this up about geology and the earth sciences trying to tell a story or a cosmology, if you will, of the contemporary planet. Because one thing I really appreciated about your book is that you're really interested not only in what Western science and Western scientists did in Java and the stories that they told about Java and the world, but also on local cosmologies and their relationships to earth sciences. You use the term intercalation to explore this relationship between these two bodies of knowledge, say Western imperial science and local cosmologies. What is the geological meaning of intercalation and how are you using the concept? Can you maybe give some examples? Yeah, yeah. But before I'd like to just back up one second, though, and then I think we can circle back to that, to the question about intercalation. Yeah, because I want to go back to to actually sort of finish off sort of what I was just talking about. Sure. Prompted by your question about the connection between European colonialism and the imperial project and the geological sciences to say that that's that making that connection is in my mind actually like one of the core elements of the project of political geology. And this links back to what I was saying towards the beginning of our conversation about how I came to this work 
by trying to understand the, the social role of the geological sciences. And that what happened was that that really expanded outwards into being interested in the core role of the geological sciences over the past few centuries and how it is that they have shaped the narratives that we have inherited about the landscape and about geological history and the history of the earth itself. But that's not, as I see it, the only function of political geology because the, this kind of second dimension of it is that the Western geological sciences are not the only knowledges that there have been <laughs> about geological materials and landscapes and or the history and structure, the evolutionary history and structure of the earth itself. So the other purpose of political geology is to also open up and expand those narratives about geological materials and how it is that geology relates to humans, other conceptions of the role of geological knowledges in society. Uh, so it is to acknowledge the colonial and imperial legacies that are in the geological sciences, absolutely, like that's really, really important, but also to say that's not the only way to think about geology. And that's also what is like central to the book. And a lot of it is spent trying to understand the Japanese spiritual traditions and how they conceptualize geological material and geological processes, the significance of Indonesian Islam in thinking about the history and evolution of the earth itself, Javanese spiritual topographies and how they make sense of volcanic processes. And the next move in that process that is central to the book is to show how they interacted with Western colonial imperial geological sciences how they, in fact, influence those sciences, um, how they are incorporated into um, the narratives that standard geological sciences have of the Earth today. So that is where we end up at the idea of intercalation. Um, sorry, it was a long way around to get... <laughs> to get to there but <laughs> no that was really great please um, <laughs> but, proceed. um so intercalation is actually a geological term to talk about geological contexts where they're basically made up of like mixtures of a whole bunch of different stuff fused together <laughs> it's, it's a very very heterodox description of it and geologists would be I don't know. My, many of my colleagues are geologists and they would absolutely despise the way that I just did that. <laughs> um, but for those of us who are not trained in the earth and environmental sciences, that's a way to understand intercalation. And it's different than, say, stratification, where you have like really quite distinct layers on top of each other. They can be side by side if they're, if they're moved around too. But another thing that is important about intercalation is that 
it's made up of bits of fragments of different periods sort of mushed up side by side. And that's how it would be different from something like stratification, where each layer is a different period. It's uh, linear in its chronology. Intercalation is not necessarily linear. So you have different historical bits sort of fused or mashed up together. And so that to me seems like a productive way to think about earth knowledges and a productive way to think about the geological sciences and the earth sciences is to see them as intercalated, made up of fragments that are quite cosmopolitan from all sorts of parts of the world. Some of them are kind of translated. Some of them are not. They're just taken sort of whole hog, you know, and fused in with other bits of knowledge. So that's how, that's how I use in intercalation. You mentioned that some of these local Indonesian cosmologies and ideas about the earth were influential on Western imperial earth sciences. Do you have any examples of that? I think you talk about plate tectonics in the book as one place where this intercalation is pretty pronounced. Yeah, so one of the larger claims of the book is to argue that the theory of plate tectonics uh, was really has profound roots in Indonesia and especially in Indonesian Islam. So the conventional story of the theory of plate tectonics is that it was invented by a bunch of Americans and Europeans in the 1960s. And it was described as a revolution, really by most of the scientists who were involved at that time in talking about the theory of plate tectonics. Um, in talking about it as a revolution, it really centered their significance <laughs> in the development of this new theory. And it's, it's, it's really important to, I think, like remember that the theory of plate tectonics was really only adopted by the scientific establishment in the 1960s and 1970s. And it is now utterly the orthodox description of the evolutionary history of the planet. So it's very, very new. And we are, you know, it's like within a, a generation. I mean, it's the generation of scientists who are just above you and I, right? Mm -hmm. Who lived through that transformation. The transformation in the way of thinking about the structure of the planet itself. So this new narrative, or this narrative is still very, very new. And what I came to understand is that it wasn't really Americans and Europeans who invented this new way of thinking, but that they were in fact taught how to think about the history of the planet in fundamentally new ways by Indonesian Muslims. In the 1920s, really uh, around there, in the, let's say broadly in the early 20th century. So the story is that the kingdoms of central Java, dating back really probably to the 18th century, but likely much, much earlier, certainly emerged in their political structure by making 
agreements between deities that were in the volcanoes that were in like the center of the island of Java and deities that lived in the ocean. So it was understood that the very structure of those societies rested upon negotiations with deities in both of those places. So that meant having to give offerings to them frequently and also that those deities could withdraw their support for those societies if they so chose. Now, as a part of this spiritual infrastructure, we call it, there were regular pathways and routes to go give offerings to the deities in those places. And it was also fundamentally understood that those deities related to each other so that deities in the volcano would go visit deities in the ocean and that deities in the ocean would go visit deities in the volcano and that they had this whole sort of economy of relating to each other. So what this all meant was that those societies understood that volcanoes and the ocean were in fundamental relations of exchange. That what happened in the ocean could affect what was happening in the volcanoes and what was happening in the volcanoes could affect what was happening in the ocean. Now, when European scientists appear in this scene at the turn of at the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, they understand volcanoes completely differently, right? They understand volcanoes to be the ruins of once giant mountains. So they see volcanic eruptions as essentially the results of these mountains crumbling in on each other uh, and exploding. They do not think about there being horizontal relationships between volcanoes. Primarily, they move up or down. <laughs> and in the Japanese instance, they're like mainly down. They're mainly just falling apart, crumbling in on themselves. So they begin to study the volcanoes by doing field work. They're like importing instruments, seismographs, all this stuff. They're building huts on the edge of volcanoes to try to measure them for the first time. And this is all, as I said earlier, you know, out of a drive to try to predict when eruptions are going to happen so that they can save the plantations. But what's key to this is that the places where they are building their observatories and their huts are on the pathways of where offerings are given to the deities in the volcano. Because the spiritual infrastructure, the physical actual infrastructures of like paths and ritual sites and stuff like this are the only places that are at the top of volcanoes because nobody lives there. So they're taking the same paths from the top to the bottom. They're setting up their scientific observatories at the edges of where, you know, rituals are being conducted. But they're also deeply interested in the culture of central Javanese people. And because they're also, you know, ethnologists, there are anthropologists there who are explaining to them how it is that the Javanese understand the relationship between volcanism and the ocean and all this kind of stuff. And it ends up shifting how it is that scientists think about volcanism itself. And they begin to piece together 
through these nudgings, more or less explicit, that there are definitely horizontal relationships between volcanoes and the ocean. And that sets in motion essentially a global transformation of thinking. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of paths that I'm skipping over in this. And the book does the empirical work of tracing all of these paths. But eventually, scientists who learn to think in this new way about the relationship between volcanoes and the ocean go and teach Americans to think in this new way, and they go and teach European scientists to think in this new way. And that then becomes a crucial dimension of the theory of plate tectonics, which is that volcanism is a product in a lot of cases of the ocean floor smashing into land and re-emerging as, you know, hot liquid exploding onto the surface and rolling back down into the ocean, which is the fundamental insight upon which central Javanese societies have been built for hundreds and hundreds of years. Thank you. Yeah, that's a very interesting story. I appreciate you sharing it. Um, I do wonder, you mentioned that you have all these geologist colleagues. I wonder, have you received any pushback from them or how has your work and the book been received within geology? I imagine it's been welcomed with open arms in critical geography, human geography, but I wonder how, how the hard scientist colleagues among us have felt about your work. Yeah, interesting question. I don't really know yet. It's still, it's still pretty new, right? So the book was just out middle of August, the end of August. So it's say not quite eight weeks in the world. So there's no reviews out yet. I was invited to give a talk to earth scientists in Bristol in a month or thereabout, because they're really interested in, in questions of the decolonization of the discipline. And so that is a very live issue, especially in Britain right now, amongst earth scientists, environmental scientists. I don't know how many of them will read the, the book. There's d different disciplinary cultures too. But yeah, I'm, I'm also very curious how it's going to work. Speaking of what might be called an alternative approach to the earth sciences, in chapter five, you talk about Johannes Umgrove, a somewhat forgotten figure who took an unusual and more expansive approach to geology, linking it with spirituality and cosmology, even psychology and poetics. In fact, the title of your book is shared with his own book from 1942, The Pulse of the Earth. Who was Johannes Umgrove and why is he such a, an interesting figure for you or someone to, to think about as you were writing your book? Yeah, I guess I should say that one of the tasks of the book is to really tell the story of the geological sciences in a way that is unconventional, that, that people don't know. Um, I really wanted to make geology weird for all sorts of reasons, partly to get people like us on board and thinking about geology and how to do it and participate in it or what's called the earth sciences now. Um, 
also because I really want to excavate a tradition within geology that is, um, that's weird, that's more expansive, that's not what we thought of as the geological sciences. To really tell the story of that science in a, uh, from a kind of left field vision. So as much as I'm interested in being critical of the role of geology in European empire and all that stuff, as I was talking about, I'm really much more inspired by, you know, rethinking that tradition, trying to grab interesting things from it, trying to, yeah, look at it from a really different angle. And Umgrove is, is that for me. Umgrove is essentially a dandy geologist. For me, he's a picture of the geologist who is the very expansive thinker, in some ways queer, who's as interested in the history of literature as he is in like, how to narrate how a particular landscape came to be. So he talks about his own work as geopoetics. And this was a real revelation for me because I originally came to geopoetics through Kenneth White, who's a Scottish writer, and didn't realize that, in fact, there's an entire history of scientists describing what they do as geopoetics. And Umgrove does that. And he conceptualizes it in a, in a very particular way. So, so what was really interesting for me in, in Umgrove's approach was that he was a scientist who thought of his intellectual project in terms of making connections between the smallest scale things and the largest scale things and between the inside of ourselves and the entire cosmos. So he understood geology to be a kind of project of linking and finding linkings across scales. And what an expansive, incredible and provocative conception of what it is to do science. It rubs absolutely against the grain of, you know, how scientists work today against the entire, you know, structuring of the apparatus of scientific knowledge production in universities. But what was also really profound for me in learning about Ungrof was that he was an Orientalist, just as many of his colleagues were. So Ungrof spends uh, three years in Java between 1926 and 1929. And what was really surprising to me was to learn that he was an Orientalist, that he was fascinated by Japanese culture, that this fascination was very complicated, as it was with many people at the time, because they were very scared of Islam. And they were excited by ancient Japanese culture, especially its Hindu and Buddhist past, because it could potentially leverage against the significance of Islam in Japanese culture. 
So Umgrev has this uncomfortable and difficult relationship um, with Japanese culture, uh, but he's also reading classic texts of Hinduism, uh, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, and these are influencing the way that he thinks about time and especially geological time and deep time. And he incorporates all of these elements, mixes them all together into his work in order to um, develop what he calls a theory of complementarity, which is basically his attempt to make links from the deepest dimensions of ourselves to the outermost reaches of the cosmos, something like that. So, yeah, I mean, all of these elements are to me very, very inspiring um, because they are um, politically complicated. They are, uh, I think, quite challenging for us now to think about what it would mean to engage with this work or to continue it. All, yeah, all of these things, I think, are, uh, got me really excited about home growth. That brings us to the conclusion and actually back to the beginning of this conversation where you were sort of introducing how you came to this work through the Anthropocene literatures, which have kind of exploded, I guess, in recent decades. And in the conclusion to your book, you seem really interested in re-enchanting the earth sciences in a way that aligns with those discussions of the Anthropocene more. What is it about our present moment that calls out for the sort of project you've undertaken in the book? Maybe that's a broad question, but just to give you some space to reflect on that, what is it about our moment that that calls out for this? Yeah, I guess I have two two answers to that, which is that the, the first is that I'm un, I'm uncomfortable actually with ideas around disenchantment. I'm uncomfortable with ideas around reenchantment, the reenchantment of nature. Because I think that the geological sciences are already enchanted. Part of the project of the book of telling this kind of weird story about the history of the geological sciences and getting into people like Umgrove, spending all the time that I spend on theosophical texts and showing how all of these geologists in the 1920s and 1910s in the Netherlands, East Indies, were theosophists and fascinated by theosophy. And how they're interested in discussions of occultism and all that stuff. And that is understood to be just on the, it's just part of science. So our standard narrative from Weber is that the modern sciences have disenchanted the world. And I think that that is partly true, but there's also this other tradition of science as enchantment, utterly enchantment enchanted. Now, in regards to the Anthropocene, one of the things that I try to do in the book is make the case that the Anthropocene is the becoming Javanese of the earth sciences. So when I talked about the theory of plate tectonics and how European scientists talked about it as a revolution and that they centered their own significance in that story, they erased the significance of Japanese Muslim intellectuals and centered the story on themselves. 
And then if we jump forward to the Anthropocene moment in the earth and environmental sciences, the Anthropocene is based on the acknowledgement that social processes and geological processes are fundamentally bound up with each other. And that society is transformative of geological processes. That insight is the fundamental insight of Japanese societies in the 18th and 19th century, at the very moment when European scientists were there learning about how to think in new ways about the relationship between volcanoes and the ocean. When those scientists took the, that new way of thinking, they conveniently erased the entire social dimension of that whole story. What I mean by that is that they failed to acknowledge how societies have debts to geological agencies. So when the Sultan goes and gives gifts to the deities in the volcano and then goes and gives gifts to the deities in the ocean, it's because it is understood that society itself exists, is granted the capacity to exist through those deities. And those deities can remove that capacity. And therefore, there needs to be exchange. So there's a profoundly social conception of geological material. Anthropocene scientists are now beginning to think about the social dimension of geological material that is dawning upon them and us that it needs to be thought about. So there's a tradition in Indonesia and in many other parts of the world of how to make those arrangements, how to think about those arrangements. I think that that is a kind of, creates a kind of common groundwork between scientists who are thinking about the Anthropocene, trying to define it, and these earth knowledges, which were actually erased from the geological tradition itself. That seems like a good place to close. Adam, Babette, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about your new book. Again, the book is The Pulse of the Earth. It's out in 2023 with Duke University Press. Adam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. That was Adam Babette, lecturer of political geology at the University of Glasgow. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time.